If you brought a Bible, go ahead and open, you guessed it, to the book of Ephesians. We'll be doing the introduction, the greeting this morning, verses 1 to 2. Before I read that, uh, a couple things. One, just by virtue of our home group ministry starting up today, I just want to remind you that um, if you haven't found a home group and you're just now hearing about this for the first time, which is possible, um, don't feel like you are too late. Um, you can figure out what works best for your schedule over the next month or so and find a place that would work well for you, whether that's a place closer to home or you've decided, I want more content, I want to study something, or I want to be in a home group that's more relational, meeting people. Um, if you have any questions about that, of course, all that information you heard up here is on our website, uh, but Jamie would be a good one to contact as he heads up that ministry for us. So just want to remind you about that. As we begin a new series, uh, a couple things that I always like to um, state uh, about our practice here, especially if you're new here or if you're visiting um, is that one of the things we like to do as we enter uh, a season, whether it's the fall or spring, is we like to take books of the Bible and travel through them. And there's a couple of reasons, for, well, there's a lot of reasons for that. Two I'll give you. One's conviction. We believe that we, uh, well, that God has given us uh, his, his whole word here, and we need to hear from all of it as much as we can. And, um, and so the best way to do that is to take it in its own original context and to go through books where we are reading whatever the text is presented for us that day, and that's going to be what God has for us. And we, that's a conviction of ours. Uh, the second thing, though, is sort of accountability, a protection that um, you don't get to hear the pastor's soapbox, you know, topics. And, you know, this is the fourth week in a row when we're talking about politics or something just because Ryan has gone off the rails. Um, this is just, this is keeping us focused on what we think is central to the Christian faith, which is God's Word. And so again, taking a book and going through it gives us the chance to read that together and study that together in its own context, but it also protects you from me in one sense um, uh, of picking the topics that I love to talk about and avoiding perhaps even hard, difficult, or uncomfortable passages that God has given us for our, our own benefit and good. Um, so just a reminder of that, um, and so we'll begin that here this fall as we look through uh, the book of Ephesians, and we'll take a, a, a short break for Advent as we go through the Christmas season, and we'll pick back up in this book in the middle of January and run it all the way up to Palm Sunday. So uh, we'll take our time with this. Uh, there's some places like the next 15 verses, for example, we're going to take two weeks in that because it's like drinking out of a fire hydrant, and it's good for us to slow down. And, and even at that, we're just sort of scratching the surface of what Paul has to tell us. So uh, with that, let me read for us God's word this morning found in the book of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word to us. We pray now that as we look at it, um, that you would open our eyes and our ears, that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not. Would you teach us this morning by your Holy Spirit, we ask. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, as most of you are probably aware at this point, um, Queen Elizabeth II died on a Thursday, I believe, September 8th this week. Um, And for many who followed her and for those who didn't, you know, this got our attention. I think you heard about it at least from any type of news outlet. If you're a fan of The Crown on Netflix, this probably hit a bit harder. Um, But the queen reigned for 70 years. 70 years. I think that's, I don't know what that is, but it's impressive at the least. And uh, for many, not just in England, she was uh, this permanent fixture, this rock, if you will, uh, regardless of what you believe politically or if you think having kings and queens today is a bit outdated. Um, you could tell, especially by the outflow of people's comments, that her presence meant something, whether you thought about it on a daily basis or not. And most of us didn't know exactly what she did. Uh, maybe I'll speak for myself. Um, or even how her presence impacted our individual lives, if at all. I know I always ask the question, what, what power does the queen actually have? And how does parliament play a role in that? That's, that's why I'm an American. Um, don't know about other people's governments. But um, knowing she was there mattered, and I think we all felt the weight of that. Listening to the radio this week as I took May to school one, one Friday morning, I heard uh, these statements from people um, about the queen. She's a constant. She's always been there, literally. Um, she was the rock that parliament was built on. Um, along with, with that, if you uh, peruse social media, you knew something was happening, uh, at least with all the social media posts that people would, would put it with their favorite quotes of the queen, pictures taken with her, places where they got to meet her, and all of the different things involving her. It was very honoring, for sure. And, um, you know, while the queen wasn't perfect, we could say she did her job well and faithfully. Well, as someone who didn't follow the queen or the monarchy at all, really, um, it occurred to me that I'm someone who, um, at 42 years of age, I haven't lived a day of my life without her reigning. And that caused me to kind of put that in perspective a little bit. Because when that presence is gone, as you heard people talk about, you realize that you begin to notice it more and more and more. What was once sort of this constant, as people referred to her, sort of running in the background of our lives, regardless of its effects, has now taken on new meaning and really new interests for many of us who didn't even know what she did. And as I thought about that, as I think about it, and how it makes me wonder, you know, what else might be operating in the background of my life in the same way as the queen in this instance? What else, perhaps, is is this constant that is running in the background that I'm glad is there, but I'm, to be honest, not really sure what it does? And maybe more to the point, not really sure the, the, the day-to-day impact that it has or even should have on my life. What power do those things have? And maybe you've experienced this with certain things in your life, um, certain things in your life that are important to you but just sort of run in the background. Maybe it's extended family, just glad they're there, but life is so busy I just don't have time to keep up with them. Maybe it's your job. Your job is just sort of this constant that just is running in the background, that the thing you do in order to do other things. 
Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your faith. And how often, as Christians, we can come in here day in and day out, some of us for 70 years and more. And we are part of this thing called Christianity, but would we say that it's not impossible for it to become in such ways as this thing, this constant that we depend on, but oftentimes in our lives is just running in the background, and as circumstances come into our lives, we wonder, what is its day-to-day impact in my life? What power does it really have? And if, if that touches you at any place in your life um, this morning, and you know, whether you're a new Christian or not, um, I think there are all, all of us can agree that there are experiences in our lives where we wonder, what, what is the role of Christianity in this particular time and place? And what is it uh, in my own life? And as we get busy, which we love to do, how do I know and even keep it from being this thing that just sort of keeps going on in the background, this constant not really having any power or any kind of uh, day-to-day effect in my life, and is that even a good thing? Well, if that is you, then the remedy for that this morning is the book of Ephesians. And in many ways, this is sort of what we'll see this morning in this introduction, the context in which Paul is writing to a church that is in a setting, as we'll see, that is very pagan, very full of, of witchcraft and, and worship of other gods that seem to be way more powerful than they are. We'll hear about the, the Temple of Artemis, which is the eighth wonder of the world, twice as big as the uh, Pantheon in, in Athens. It was the center of spiritual worship. And in, this, and in the midst of that was this small little sect of Christians being run out of town for various reasons that we'll look at, wondering what does Christianity have to do with my life and the day-to-day workings out here in a place as pagan as Ephesus? And maybe more to the point, is this God, does he really have the power to deal with my life in these circumstances? And for others, Is this just another one of those religions that we sort of are glad is there, but for the most part, it just runs in the background as we go about our lives? Well, one of my hopes as we travel through this book is that you would encounter what Paul can only put in words as the immeasurable, immeasurable greatness that is the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. And and sort of what he does for the the people in Ephesus, and what I hope he does for you as we travel through this, is he presents and gives pictures of the awesomeness of this God that is so other, so immeasurable, and so great, that you can't help but get taken up into that greatness. And and not not in a way that we forget about our surroundings, but in a way that we recognize that the God that we serve in Jesus Christ is far more powerful and far more capable than anything else that we could ever dream of, no matter where we find ourselves, no matter what age or stage of life. And that as we travel through it, that we would not only be able to say that, but then we would also begin to see as well as followers of this Jesus, whether we have just started or whether we've been doing this for 70 years, that we would begin to see Jesus as not running in the background of our own lives, but as having new meaning and new interest as well, such that immeasurable greatness, that wonderful phrase, is the only way that we know how to describe what Jesus really is. So to get to that, we'll start with the introduction of this letter. And many people ask, 
Why start with the introduction, right? Don't you know what's happening? Beginning of verse 3, if you've read any of this book, it's amazing. It's some of just the most beautiful words penned. I do. I know it's waiting. But I hope that we'll see that it's just as important as beginning with these two verses and this introduction uh, that, 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 that as we begin here, we'll make so much richer uh, what follows after this and certainly throughout the rest of the book. Um, for our time, I want us to look at three things that are not printed in your bulletin, and that is simply the author of this letter, so the author, the audience of this letter, and the message of this letter. Author, audience, message. And while we refer to it as the book of Ephesians, I'll say this again, I'm sure, it really was just a, it was a letter, a letter that Paul penned or had dictated. So let's begin with that first one of the author. Um, while there are some in the theolog theological realms who argue this most overwhelmingly accept the author to be Paul, and you're thinking, Ryan, yeah, it says it right there in verse 1, and you are correct, which means you are a good theologian. <laughs> it does say it there. It also says it in chapter 3 of verse 1, where Paul addresses himself as the author of this letter. Um, at the same time, Paul also notes in 3.1 there that he is a prisoner, and this coincides with Luke's account in Acts that gives his authorship also more credibility. We read a portion of that from chapter 19. But what we, what we didn't read earlier in chapter 19 that, that Luke records is Paul's visit to Ephesus and what we learn there. And what we learn is that Paul, um, well, we did actually read this, stayed there for about two years um, teaching and starting a church. What we didn't read was what happened because of that. That as Paul is teaching, uh, what's happening is that these, these, these Gentile converts of Ephesus are, are dropping their, their um, pagan worship and they are becoming to be a part of this thing called the way or what Christianity, what we call Christianity. And this is becoming a problem because people like a man named Demetrius who's a blacksmith and makes idols for a living, he's recognizing where the trends are going and sales are, are dipping because people aren't buying the, uh, the idols that he's making. And this causes a riot with Demetrius as he grabs all the blacksmiths together and this sends them out into the street chanting, long live Artemis. This is where they live, by the way. <laughs> this is what's going on. And so Paul, in his efforts to sort of get into the mix of it all, his disciples pull him away uh, because it's too dangerous. And then he goes on and uh, becomes arrested in Jerusalem where he pins this letter back to this church, these elders. Paul wrote four letters from prison that we know of. Well, that's a little bit more of the context, but who is this Paul? And for those that have probably grown up in the church, you know that Paul didn't always used to be Paul. Paul used to be Saul. Saul. Uh, we meet Saul in Acts chapter 8 where we read that he, what, approved of his execution. Well, whose execution? A man by the name of Stephen who was chosen as an officer back in chapter 6 as this church was getting started to help serve the growing needs of the early church. We read that Stephen was, quote, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and that Saul, who will later become Paul, was there and approved of his execution. And while many know of Paul's history, it's important to start here remembering that the author of this letter that we're going to travel through was once someone who hated Christians, was once someone who hated Jesus. Paul was a Jew of Jews, smart in every way, excelled in every single capacity, 
and was a leader of preserving the Jewish culture and religion, specifically against sects that like Christianity that attempted to sort of garner more converts to it as proclaiming, right, as a fulfillment of that, of what Judaism taught. And so Saul gave his life to preserving this, which meant persecuting Christians and the church until what? Until he met Jesus. Chapter 9, as we read earlier on the road to Damascus, Saul was then converted after Jesus broke into his life on this road while riding to Damascus to ask the high priests for permission to what? Persecute Christians. There's a little bit of humor in that. But upon his conversion, Saul's name became Paul. And this was done to signify a change in identity. I am no longer called Saul and thus believe and am associated with that life. I am Paul, an apostle and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which brings us to this next thing that we need to slow down and look at. What does it mean to say that he is an apostle? What does that word mean? And to, to be quick about it, we don't have anything like this in the church today. Um, we believe that there was an apostolic age, which is that there were 12 apostles that, that, that lived immediately after the ascension of Jesus. And after those apostles died, there were no more apostles. So what does this mean? Is this a super Christian? Well, I wouldn't really even phrase it like that. The best way that I've heard to define apostle for us, and I'll quote one pastor, says that he is a representative of Christ with power of eternity on steroids. He is a representative of Christ with power of attorney on steroids. If you don't know what power of attorney is, kids, uh, uh, ask your parents at home. I'm sorry about that. But what this meant then is that as apostles, they represented Jesus, but were also able to act on his behalf. That's what power of attorney is in powerful ways by his spirit. And one of the things that this means and why Paul is addressing himself as an apostle in this introduction is that to say that I am apostle is to say that I am speaking for Jesus. I am speaking for Jesus and you are to receive these words as they, though they are from him. In other words, they are not Paul's thoughts. They are not Paul's opinions on the matter. And I know as soon as I say that, that, is an, that, I'm asking you to have faith in that. And that's, you're exactly right. This is one of the things that Christians believe. But this is what Paul means when he says that he's an apostle. That you are to receive these words, not from me, but from Jesus. And because of that, they have authority. What we don't need to think when we hear the word apostle is holier than thou. Or some religious bureaucrat. Paul is a representative called by Jesus to speak for Jesus, and we should listen to him because of that. Jamie sent this quote to the Wallace Instagram account from Kierkegaard's essay on an apostle. And in this quote, Kierkegaard says many things, but I'll read you this part. He says, I am not to listen to Paul because he is brilliant, contrasting an apostle to a genius, but I am to submit to Paul because he has divine authority. That's an apostle. And so we would agree with the same. That as we go through this letter and as we understand its author, Paul, as an apostle, we are by faith saying this is Jesus' word to us. And we will receive it as such. Lastly, by the will of God for this first 
point, and I'll be quick here, all this means is that Paul did not volunteer for this. Paul did not self-appoint himself is what he's saying. He's saying that I am both converted, a follower of Jesus, one who used to persecute the church. Um, I'm now a representative And all of this by the will of God. And just in case we are a little skeptical, let's also add this note. Nothing in Paul's life gets better after he starts following Jesus. There is zero advantage for Paul to do this. But it's by the will of God, he says. This is his direction in his life that he would do this on his behalf. As John Stott notes, he had not volunteered for this ministry, nor had the church appointed him. Very important. On the contrary, his apostleship derived from the will of God and from the choice and commission of Jesus Christ. This is just a little bit of the author of who is writing this. Paul, who was once one who hated Christians, who hated Jesus, who is now a Christian, who now follows Jesus, who now represents Jesus, and does so by the will of God. And so before we move off this point, I, I think it's important to, to sort of ask this question of us as we think about this over the next several months. That even just as we stop to examine the author, um, do we come into the presence of God in a whole new way by hearing that story? In other words, has God gotten bigger for you just because of what you heard here by who is penning this letter? Because it would for those who would be reading this. And what this presses upon us and what I want to press upon you all as a church, especially members of Wallace, is just a simple application for this fall. Are we praying for people to come to Christ? And even as I say that, right, does does the jadedness and the skepticism sort of flare up? Done that, Ryan. Are we praying for people to come to Christ? And not just nice people, right, are the ones who we think would make good Christians. What we're reading in this first verse is is, is to ask, are we praying for people in our lives who are adamantly against the gospel? Adamantly against Jesus and Christianity. Because what we're invited to do by virtue of this author is to believe in a God big enough to do that. To take Saul's and make them Paul's. To make him representatives of himself and his work. Because it is his will. So wherever you land with that, whatever, however big God needs to get for you to do that, will you join me with that? As one of the things we try to do this fall is pray for people. Specifically those who, and it turns out usually for me, it's not so much the person that is so against Christianity. It's actually the person that I don't really want to hang out with. That's the person, that's Saul. That's the person that God is asking me to pray for. And I would ask you to do the same as we rethink what God can do in and around us as we are seeing it here in the opening verses of Ephesians. That's the author. Let's move on to the audience here. Who did Paul write to? And um, the short answer to that is he, he wrote to a mix of uh, what we call Gentile converts and Jewish converts. Okay? And uh, we're gonna, that's going to have a lot of weight for us as we head into the book. But um, that's who he's writing to. 
Um, in the second, or the second half of verse 1, we see that he says, To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, or are also faithful in Christ Jesus. So let's, let's look at that for a second as we understand the audience. Um, I, I should note this. At this point, this is exactly how most of these letters would be penned. So you'd have an author and you have an audience. So maybe I assumed that and didn't mention that. But so, so far, he's getting an A in his English class. Um, most agree that the audience of Paul's letter um, is uh, those who are in Ephesus, but there is some disagreement to that. Um, the earliest manuscripts don't actually include the word Ephesus, but simply have a blank space. Okay, so this, what this means is um, it doesn't mean that it wasn't for those who were in Ephesus, um, but it was probably a letter that was circulating to different churches in the area. We know in Colossians, which is another prison letter of Paul's, he mentions the church of Laodicea, which, which Colossians and Ephesians seems to be written at a very, you know, if you look at them, they're very similar. Um, and so perhaps even, you know, Ephesians is really the letter to the church in Laodicea. Um, this is all theological muckety-muck. And if you are more interested in that, come and ask me about it. Be happy to, to get into the weeds of that with you. What's important to note is that Paul is writing to the church as opposed to individuals, which he's done before, and opposed to, as opposed to Christians in an area concerning a question, which is what he often does, or even dispelling some heresy. And what this means is that Ephesians is unique, regardless if it was a circular letter to different churches, it's unique in that way because it is to the church, which means it has different weight and, and, and implications. Paul is not addressing individual concerns or specific problems. Um, there's no heresy here that he's addressing. He is writing with the church in mind and how they are to live and grow with, as one with challenges both on the outside and challenges both on the inside as a church. Okay? Now, I don't know if that's a stretch for uh, this body to, to sort of get into. There are challenges outside of this church, but there are challenges what? Inside this church. One of the reasons why I think going through Ephesians will be very pertinent for us. What are some of the challenges, though, outside of the church here in Ephesus? As I've said already, this is a, this is a very pagan city. As Brian Chapel notes, who will actually be here to speak to us on October 9th, let me plug that. Um, he says this, that these words, saints and in Ephesus, here on, in, in the verse we just read, uh, do not go together in Paul's day and age. It would be like saying to the Christians in Iraq or to the evangelicals working at Google, the phrases don't seem to go together because the challenges to faith in the place these believers live are so strong. And maybe that didn't occur to us um, as we read over this. But Ephesus was, as we said, the fourth and or fifth largest city in Paul's day and age and was the center of much pagan worship and not friendly to Christians by any stretch. In contrast, um, you could make a, a strong argument that College Park would be a very Christian place to live compared to Ephesus, to put that in contrast. So putting these two words together, the saints in Ephesus, um, would stand out mainly because Ephesus was anything but holy. Anything but what you would associate with as calling it something as the saints in Ephesus, referring to that audience. But this is what Paul does, and part of what he's doing is he's combining these two things to remind them, what, of the power that Christ has over all things, including Artemis, who would be at the center of Ephesus. 
right? He will remind them of how Christ rules over all things, as we'll see in this letter. Everything is in subject to his um, uh, and subject to him. He will remind them that they are created for his workmanship for good works. That is, they have mission to do here, regardless of what is going on outside of them. He will tell them that because of Christ, they stand in him, which functions as this armor uh, in, spirit, in the spiritual world around them. In other words, Paul will tell them, with response to the challenges going on outside of them and the pagan city that they are in, that they are actually people who can't be touched, not even in death because of Jesus and who they are, being united to him in his resurrection. Um, There are many more challenges outside the church that we'll continue to interact as we go through the letter. Uh, Just for time's sake, what about inside the church? And this is uh, one I'll press upon you this morning and by way of introduction, is that uh, the biggest challenge going on inside the church is how are these Jewish converts and these Gentile um, converts going to live together? How are they going to live together? And we may not catch this in this opening phrase, but we've got to look at this word saints, uh, the saints in Ephesus. Um, What do we mean by this phrase? Well, this was a Jewish phrase of origin that that means set apart, consecrated, kind of like holy. And today we refer to Christians as saints, but that's not because they achieved some holy status or, or did something and then were anointed sainthood. Um, it has everything to do with their faith in Christ. So when he says saints in Christ, he is speaking simply to those who have faith in Jesus. And that is you this morning, you are a saint in College Park, according to Paul. But this phrase would also be offensive to Jews at the time because Paul is attaching something that was strictly Jewish to what is what? Gentile or non-Jewish. One commentator says, Paul bestows upon all his pagan-born listeners a privilege formerly reserved in Israel for special events, especially priestly of God. We can begin to feel the tension here and the challenge within uh, for, for what that means of how Gentile and Jewish converts will live and worship together, given their backgrounds, given their stories. Um, how do they see each other as equals in Christ and not as inferiors based on their ethnicity or life experiences? Again, this is a major theme and challenge moving forward that Paul will speak into. But the answer to both of these challenges, both exterior in the context of which they find themselves, but inside the church as well, has to do with this phrase that he mentions there, that they are what? In Christ. In Christ. Both of their challenges in Ephesus and in the church are met with and remedied by virtue of this phrase. That you can actually be in two places at once. Have a foot in Ephesus and all that, is, all that that is and going around them, but also be a saint as well by virtue of your union with Christ. That you could have been worshiping idols the week before, before Paul's teaching caught your ear and the Holy Spirit opened your heart to believe in Jesus and find yourself worshiping with God's people the next week. This is, <laughs> this is Christianity. This is our story. And this is how this is possible by virtue of being in Christ. It is a huge deal for Paul. Um, In many ways, as Christians, and I shared this with our Sunday school class this morning, 
we can tend to, not, not saying that we all do, but just contend to at times to think about Christianity as this thing that you're given. You're given certain things by virtue of your faith in Christ. So you believe in Jesus and he gives you salvation and he gives you the adoption into his family and he gives you glorification, right? The eternal life that we're all looking for as if these are pieces of luggage that we take with us as we go about our lives. But this is not the gospel, nor is this any of Paul's message to us. You actually have those things, according to Paul, by virtue of being in Christ, which is why he is starting his letter this way. You are faithful in Ephesus. You are faithful in College Park, wherever you find yourselves, because you are what? In Christ. It is because you are in him that you have the gifts that he gives, mainly Jesus, that gives us this salvation, that gives us this wonderful justification, this righteousness, this adoption, all these things that we will read about in this book. This is a major, major issue for Paul. Um, as we continue through here, though, this is a little bit of the audience, Jew and Gentile converts living in a very pagan city, um, and this is how Paul will instruct the church and its challenges, both outside and inside the church. And In short, there's, there's no unity, which is a theme in Ephesians, outside of being in Christ. And we'll see Paul unpack that as we move along. Lastly, the message. Um, what does a church in this context with these types of people um, under its roof following Jesus, what do they need to hear? And where Paul leaves it, where I'll leave it for us this, this morning, is grace and peace to you from our God and Father, from, from, our, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe more than any other place in this introduction, this is the place where we just sort of gloss over it and move on to the real meaty stuff after this. But if you gloss over this, right, which might also be an indication that, right, maybe, maybe Christianity is sort of just floating around in the background, you're going to miss everything that Paul is about to write about and why he can write about it. He's going to talk about grace. And, and what is grace, right? We talk about grace a lot, and we talked about this um, with uh, the Labor Day Retreat. And um, just briefly... A lot of people think about grace like this. Okay, so if you're going to come over, and I'll use the, this is a common illustration. You're going to come over to my house, and let's say this fall you're going to rake my leaves, and I'm going to pay you $40, right? We would call that wages. Come rake my leaves, I'll pay you $40. If you come over and you don't rake my leaves, and I still pay you $40, sometimes we refer to that as grace. But actually, that's kindness, according to the Bible, Here's what biblical grace is, and it's a definition we need to travel with this entire letter, is you come over to my house, you don't rake my leaves, you punch me in the face, and I give you $80. That's biblical grace. And wh why is that? It's merit in the face of demerit. It's, re it's, 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 it's favor in the face of rejection. And that might be a question for you this morning, like, where is this coming from, Ryan? And we'll hear about that as we turn to chapter 2. That what sin has done for us has actually put us in a place of demerit, such that we are ones who come over in one sense, as it were, and punch Jesus in the face, and he still gives us $80. Merit in the face of demerit. What we do not deserve and what we are actually against, that's grace. And what Paul is saying in this introduction to those in Ephesus is you have that. And where do, they ha it's not, where do they have it from? It's not from Paul. It's from who? From God our Father 
and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace would be very similar to the Greek greeting of the day, which means that as Gentile converts heard this word, it would be in one sense a throw to them. Welcome. Grace to you. You belong here. But what about peace? Peace we're probably more familiar with. Shalom. Pretty much an Old Testament greeting. Not a peaceful, easy feeling, but it's an all is well with you in all areas of life. The Old Testament talks about peace as, as, as this. As, it's, it's, the, it's the only thing that you can get from God. Sorry. It's the thing that you can only get from God. And he bestows that upon you. And so as we think about what peace might mean as well, as this uh, uh, ability to, to imagine reconciliation between you and God and that all is well with you, Paul is saying to you as well, this is, this is yours too. And it being from the Old Testament, it would be a throw to those Jewish converts. And in a phrase all of a sudden now that we sort of use, maybe perhaps without even thinking about it because it's good Christian language, you begin to see in, in, in one sense what Paul's about to talk about. One, he's about to talk about how the world is united, Jew and Gentile, because of Jesus Christ. And the reason they're united because of Jesus Christ is because grace is only given to you by God. In order for that reconciliation to happen, in order for that peace to happen, and this is Paul's big thrust and what he'll say to, to us over and over and over again, is that the peace that we long for in this world, the reconciliation that you need in Jesus Christ has been given to you and it is of grace. And the way that we may maintain that peace is by resting. And so in this way, grace and peace to us isn't just sort of this uh, sort of, you know, formal greeting or informal greeting or just sort of a, a caricature of, of the things that we're supposed to write in a letter. This is the gospel for Paul. This is the world being united under Jesus, as it were. And his message to you is that grace what will always lead to peace in your life is a peace that is found only in resting in this grace. And this grace doesn't come to you by a parent. It doesn't come to you by your grandparent. It comes from the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father. This is Paul's message. This is the author. This is the audience. And as we reflect on this, as we think about this, um, it's not only what will unite the church and make it one to hear this gospel, this grace and peace, whatever this message is that Paul will give us, but it is actually the thing that as we begin to soak in it and rest in it ourselves, that we begin to reflect something to the world that Paul and hopefully us can only describe as the immeasurable greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ. That he would do this for us at the same time, in the face of demerit, do this for us, but yet maintain this peace that we have by resting in grace alone as well. Whether you're a new believer here this morning or whether you're a, a, a veteran Christian of the church, 
Um, wherever Christianity is for you, whether it's exciting or maybe whether it's running in the background of your life, I want to invite you to come back and explore this letter, what Paul will have to teach us and show us about the wonders and the, just the, the majesties of Jesus Christ um, and what he has done for us uh, that is our grace and is our peace. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for introductions, for greetings. And while they're easy to want to get past, uh, to, to get to the good stuff, uh, I pray that we would slow down and, 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 and read afresh by your Spirit what is actually going on here. The work that you have done, that is no small thing, of what you've done in Paul's life, how you've called him by your will, the change that you have uh, created in his life as someone who hated you, but who is now a representative of you. That you would care about Christians in a place that is so far off, so pagan, um, that many of us would probably not dare to even visit it. But you claim that space as sovereign Lord. And your church is present there, as it is here. And so in the midst of this, would you give us eyes to see your work in our lives, but also in this area? Would you give us greater glimpses of how big you are? Perhaps we are the ones who are putting you in this box. And may this letter teach us more about who you are and the greatness and the immeasurable greatness that you have for us in Jesus. And may that come to us first and foremost with the taste of grace and the taste of peace that we have only in Jesus. We ask this in his name alone.